Welcome to Don't Give Up Your Day Job, the podcast, the only podcast you need. I hope you're doing all right and getting by out there. As I record this intro, it is April 22nd, 2020. We have now been in lockdown in New Zealand for four weeks and we had the news two days ago that we have one week left before we go to level three. I don't completely know what that means, except we can now order pizza. But I hope uh, those of you who can go back to work and can get a little bit of normality back can do that and enjoy that and make the most of it. Uh, today on the show we have Tia Radar. Now you know Tia Radar, or Radar as I now refer to him. Um, he's been on New Zealand television for a long time. He's a very well-known and respected comedian and journalist, documentarian. Is that a word? Documentarian? Is that the right word? Documentarian? Doc- I think, I th- yeah, I think that's the right word. Maybe someone can tell me if that's the wrong word. But we've got Radar on the show. He's a very insightful, very intelligent, very quick guy. Uh, he's he's a proper journalist as well. So I'm not a proper journalist. You probably knew that. And now I'm talking to a proper journalist. I'm now, again, because it's happened before, finding myself in a position of interviewing someone who actually knows how to interview people. And that's slightly uncomfortable, I have to say. The other thing that made it uncomfortable was we recorded it via Zoom. We recorded it online because of the lockdown. And in the early days of the podcast, we would record the odd episode via Skype um, because we were talking to some people overseas and so on. And it was always a bit of a pain. There was a delay and it would kind of, it was a bit choppy and jumpy and it, it would freeze up and we would, it just didn't have the same rhythm. Um, but now we've, we've figured out a better way of doing it. So I think we, we're, we've got that sorted now. The lockdown has sort of forced us to solve that problem. And now we're actually looking at talking to a few more people overseas again. Uh, got a few things in the pipeline, which may come through. So that's cool. So Tia Radar, I went into this with my usual notes and I don't think I looked at them once. Uh, he is a really interesting thinker, and I immediately liked him when I first met him. And we got into this conversation, and we ended up on a tangent that took us uh, through most of the episode. I asked him a few things about his background and his life, but mostly we just waffled on together, as one might say. We waffled together, and we had a great waffle. I enjoyed the waffle immensely, and now we welcome you to come and enjoy some waffle with us. I would also like to say a special thanks to Jane at Johnson and Laird. Lard? Laird. Laird? Laird. I don't know how to say that either. Lard? No, it's not Lard. L-A-I-R-D. Laird. Johnson and Laird. I think it's Johnson and Laird. Special thanks to Jane from Johnson and Laird for arranging this interview. All right, here we go. Now let's do this! When we started the show, like about four years ago, we used to do the odd Skype uh, Skype recording, and it was always just a nightmare. We had brought we brought all this extra equipment in and ran cables everywhere, and we still had a nightmare. Um, yeah. And we're breaking our our new rule of not doing online recordings. We haven't done an online recording for probably three years, but of course right. we've had oh, to wow. change we've had to change that now because of the circumstances we're all in. And so you you have the honor of being our first virtual guest hey, for some you. time. Thank you. Well, these days. Content is king, and people I think are a little bit more willing to accept a low fire kind of thing. They're used to, yeah. They're used to things, uh, so you know, and particularly now where everyone's you know zooming their family and well, I meetings think pe- and people also I think are getting a bit more savvy to bullshit. I think that they like authenticity, and and therefore yeah. the production level is not as important as what's actually happening 
in the recording. God, God knows when the world is going to have time <laughs> to listen to all of the COVID quarantine podcasts and read the novels and watch the YouTube yeah. videos. Yeah, well, I mean, it crossed my mind to do to, to sort of talk about it a little bit or do a couple of feature episodes or, or whatever. And I thought, is that what people want? Or do people want to not think about it for a minute? Yeah. Yeah, I had a, a friend of mine who was um, looking for some stuff to pitch to RNZ and various other platforms. And we, he said, do you have anything? I said, oh, you know, what about a, a sense of like plagues through history? Yeah. I, I was really obsessed at the time with how art and creativity would respond right. to this. And so I, I, I'd got a sort of a bit sort of despondent. So I was looking at... Um, uh, the kind of huge proliferation of work at the end of World War One. You know what came out of World War One? It fundamentally changed the notion of art and music and creativity for, you know, well for the century, certainly for the following decade. And that's I a, said, oh, that's a good point, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, you yeah. know, so what happens with literature and, and how were plagues represented? The Bible, religious texts are full of plague stories. Right. You know, um, uh, how did people respond to them? There's a whole lot of other stuff as well. So politics, what happened? What happens in, to political systems when a plague comes through? Yeah. You know, everything is upended. Um, wars come and go and are won or lost. Economic systems fall apart. It's, yeah, so it was this kind of thing of, of what, what goes on around all of this as well, as well as looking at the other plagues. Like, I'm as bad as sort of COVID is, I'm just sort of glad it's not smallpox. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least if we sort of survive, uh, yeah. it seems that people, you know, there might be some ongoing things, but not we're not horrendously pockmarked with no. weeping sores and pustules, no, you know, exactly. and scarred forever. That's so, right, that's right. And, and we're also, I mean, it's not a death sentence, is it, out, like outright. I mean, it's, it is well, it is for some people, but it's not like the plague. No, it's not, no, yeah. no, no. But it's what's fascinating is, is seeing some of those reports coming in from people who, who have supposedly recovered and mm. then relapsed. And now uh, there was a someone I saw on, on uh, Twitter last night said her brother-in-law had COVID in the UK and then right. they thought he was better and then he young guy fit yeah. and then he got admitted to the hospital with like heart issues and they're saying well actually maybe it affects the heart and other organs right and then the Spanish or someone said um, actually we think one of the precursors one of the kind of warning signs is you get all these little sores on your feet yes I just like read that yesterday a, yeah, yeah 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 some so, lesions or something lesions that's the word I yeah. try not to I try not to think of the word lesions <laughs> So you, you've been in touch with your, your friends and colleagues, I assume, and, and of course the, the whole thing has knocked the whole entertainment industry completely around in circles, and I, I guess we're all trying to, we're on survival mode at the moment in many ways. Yeah. Um, how, are your, how are your colleagues holding up? I mean, I know that you're sort of doing all right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of doing all right, given yeah. that 99.5% of my work has disappeared. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, I think they're good. I haven't really reached out to a lot of people mm. in conversation I've seen some people pass by on social media. Some people are doing projects. Other people are sort of quiet. There's been a lot of support. The Comedy Guild has really got some great people, and they're constantly posting stuff around um, business grants, CNZ, mental health, yeah. all of these kinds of things, and things are ticking over. And and it is an interesting one of people who are kind of doing stuff and, and, and aren't. I, you know, I'm primarily a live performer, right. and primarily in conferences and corporates. Yeah. Now, I don't know when those events are going to happen again. There was a friend of mine um, uh, put a little poll up the other day saying, would you go and see comedy, uh, at, you know, uh, in the next little while if there was social distancing between tables or you, et cetera, right. you know, or all the way through to you're in a sort of a little a little booth uh, and someone said, you're, you've, you're just trying to invent something called television. <laughs> so will people want to go and see something live? I think they mm. will. Eventually people will want to come back. But how long... 
how long is that going to be? Well, there's going to be a how, balance between desperation to go back out again and do things, but also the, yeah. the fear of, of it restarting or, or what might the consequences might be. Yeah, like I've always had a backup plan of, of what happens if all the kind of corporate work stops. Right. And I'll just, I'll just, I always just thought I'd, I'd, I've got a new show that I've been working on for years and years and years that I just must get around to finishing. Mm. Um, and I would just go and tour that. And I've got a little touring mechanism that I really love for the provinces where you, you outsource the main difficulty of touring which is finding a venue right. and setting up a venue and selling tickets and you, you you outsource that to a community group that's their that's their job they sell all the tickets um, interesting and there's a kind of a, a profit split um and we provide them with a whole lot of stuff posters and media and and you know various other little bits and pieces yeah and then all i have to do is just turn up in my car and pack my gear and, and do the show <laughs> but how do you, how do you find again. how do you find people to do that though and how do you know they're going to oh, do it properly well that's the gamble. How do you know that they've? T- how do you know they've 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 they're telling you they've sold the right number of seats? Yeah, exactly. you know, there's yeah. a there's a kind of a, a, a there's a trust to it. But there are some outfits. Um, there's a a, a toy library in Caddy Caddy. I think I've done their beautiful hall over there about four four or five times. Right. You know, and they just keep wanting me back. But I haven't written any more shows. So they went, we don't care. Just bring the same one back. <laughs> there's a, so there's an element of trust. And, yeah. and we we say to them, look, you know, don't. Don't try to bite off more than you can chew. If you've got a free venue, a school hall, uh, a little local hall, and part of it was I just really wanted to go to the provinces and perform in those beautiful little halls all over the yeah. country, little war memorial halls that you drive past and there's nothing except a car park and a hall. Yeah. And this is a great way of doing it. So, so yeah, they they it's, it's up to them to, to sort of find it and sell it. And, and I say don't, don't try to sell loads and loads of tickets like right. get a, a comfortable capacity and then fill it up because what you want is people complaining that they can't get a ticket that's right because next time they'll buy sooner yeah and the other really crucial thing is is you've got to sell the ticket beforehand you've got to get their cash i say to them don't say oh we'll turn up and pay you on the night because no. invariably they they don't the good thing is it's been four or five years i think since i've done it um, and the platforms have changed. Now you can, you know, if I was to do it again, I would provide up iTicket or one of those kind of things just to say, here is the platform, here right. is the setup, you use this, then we see how many tickets are sold and there's a, and there's a profit split. And, and then it, to go back to the initial question, how do I find them? Initially, I went to the Scouts because Jamboree was coming up. Oh, And Scouts, I thought, you know, right. there's a group that always needs a fundraiser. Yeah, I've done um, primary schools, St. John's maybe. I've done just all kinds of community groups and then suddenly people know and I'm all always getting requests for will you do a fundraiser and I say well yes here is the model that we use and it works incredibly well if you have a succession of events so I tend not to do one-offs because if you have to travel or fly then they've got to hire the gear so I bought all the gear and it fitted into the car projector screen PA you know, I'm not particularly adept at setting a lot of it up, but it seems to work. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that reduces the cost. They don't have to pay for any of that. And I would cover the kind of hotels and I'd say, I cover the kind of me getting there and, and putting myself up. Yeah. You cover this. We split. If you get over a certain amount, there's a, a split there. And then we say, if you want to run a, a raffle or an auction, that's all yours. Right. And yeah. it's so beautiful. Like You know, and, and we've had crowds of anything up to some, you know, around about 95 to 100 is the optimal low level where yeah. everybody makes some, you know, a reasonable amount of money. Uh, and we've had up to kind of 500, 550 in places, Rolleston, um, 
meth than years ago was you know and and, yeah. and, the, and the great thing is I remember one of the first nights was in a little place called Takapau Freezing Works Town in Hawke's Bay yeah you know and they got this beautiful little hall and a lot of these halls have been given back to communities here's the here's your hall <laughs> oh so you've got to maintain it so right. I've done you know hall raising hall actually doing the gig to raise money for the hall is a good one <laughs> or museums little provincial museums right but here's the thing so at Tekapel they had it was packed like I've been in packed rooms this was packed they probably had 300 odd people more than the building should probably have held right and they said we, we you know they said we've never had in in almost living memory this many people in our hall right you know? really? and I think wow. that one I think we auctioned a vasectomy and a <laughs> llama or something I don't know um, I'm noticing a theme yeah. of um, of uh, innovation here even this the way that you synced us before when you held your headphones over the mic I was like wow that was really on. <laughs> you came up with a solution really quickly on the spot and now you're describing a very kind of problem solving innovative approach to, to touring comedy um, or to touring a, a show rural. Yeah. rural guy you know and you look at a situation and go what what is my end goal right how do i get to that goal what yeah. is the problem that i want to outsource or get rid of how do i allow how do i allow someone else to take that off my hands well one of the subjects we talk about quite a lot on the show uh, in regards to the context of music is how musicians just default to the same career plan over and over again and then wonder why it doesn't work out so we keep talking about that theme of of you know you you need to look at it as a new problem you know what worked for the Beatles in the 60s is not necessarily going to work now in 2020 you know yeah you gotta you gotta do you got to do you. That's right. You know? Yeah, and, and, and then and then as I say, also look at look at all of these different methods. And I've I've shared this method with other people. It it helped that I had a profile anyway right. when I started sort of doing this. It helped that I had a really great show, and it was a the show that I toured was called Eating the Dog New Zealand History Show. Yep, and it was it was it was geared. Again, it was this uh, another thing of people go, Who's, who do you want for your audience? And I was really obsessed with multi-generational audiences. I was obsessed with, because uh, I remembered sitting down with my parents or my grandparents and watching TV. I wanted people to bring their to bring their kids and to bring their, their parents. Right. So you had everything from sort of 9 to 90. Right, you know, yeah. Um, and that some people don't you know, like, some, some people in the business don't like that, do they? When they say, what's your demographic? And you go, 9 to 90, and they go, well, that's not a demographic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's everyone in the provinces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all the know, people who and, are alive. And, yeah, and, and there's all these other little things that, that, you know, from something like this that I never really thought about. Like, A, suddenly, you know, all those all those little kids, that little kid somewhere in Ikatahuna who's never seen a show like this before. Right. Or, or, or someone who'd never seen New Zealand history presented in a kind of interesting and funny kind of way. Yeah. Um, but the one thing I never really thought of that a lot of people have said, this is great, you know, uh, um, is, is that for those groups, particularly schools who want to raise money, they're always tapping the same market. Right. It's it's parents and, you know, oh, no more raffle tickets. So there was a number of places, Reparoa in particular, you know, halfway between uh, Rotorua and Topo. Mm. Uh, I only I didn't do those two places. I just did Reparoa. So they said, "Oh, this is a we've got people from Rotorua and Taupo coming to Reparoa on a Saturday night right. to see a show." Yeah, it's like yeah, you know, there were people when I did all anyway, uh, just north of Huntley, who travelled half an hour from Hamilton to come and see the show because I wasn't doing it. You know, so you yeah. get all of these people coming through. Then you get things like, because um, often with the liquor license, they've got to have food, so they'll put on a supper. Right. And, you know, these amazing suppers where people literally bring a plate and that half time, 
you know, there's no there's no pretension because you've turned up already and you've set up the gear and you've met the people and then often backstage is literally there is no <laughs> you're just standing around backstage behind your screen and then at halftime you go out and you have a cup of tea and there was one place I wish I could remember where there were three different kinds of custard squares right and so wow. you have a chat with people at halftime you know so there's no kind of being a precious artist yeah you 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 have to get it out and amongst and and try to perform and have your mind around performing while at the same time you're also having to engage with people and has that um, changed the way you perform has that changed the way you interact with people on stage it, it probably did like i it's an interesting one i'm trying to think i do a lot of corporates and stuff as well where you're always engaging with people where mm. you're on if you're emceeing events awards nights all of that i i don't tend to be someone who goes and sits in the green room in between things i'll ha- i say I'll, I'll sit with the table and it can be the the VIPs, I say, I'm happy to sit anywhere. If you want to stick me at the back or the table of people from nowhere, you know, wherever that, you know, just those those <laughs> the people. Nowhere. Oh, you know, I, I don't mind from wherever, nowhere. Wherever nowhere, that is. The nowhere, the nowhere people. <laughs> you know, so it's, yeah, and, and I think all, all of those little things, you know, it's all those little things as you go through your career, you know, uh, uh, that that change and, and, and modify the way you you perform and interact. Yeah, so, right. So in regards to the virus, what do you think that the potential positive outcomes would be for the entertainment world? I mean, because you could see this as a shake-up. I mean, wow. before, <laughs> earlier you were talking about, you know, the after the, the, what, what happens after these major catastrophes happened in history. Yeah. Post-World War II, of course, we had the boom in the 50s and culture went mental, yeah. right? So the entertainment world as a whole has been arguably dysfunctional for some time. Is this our opportunity to put things back together better? It's an opportunity to put things back differently, yeah. I suspect. Um, yeah. What will it be like during? I think there'll be a lot of people doing a lot of great kind of creative stuff in a different sort of way. There'll be a lot of people probably hunkering down and thinking, I oh, will finish that show or do that thing. Right. And it really probably depends on circumstances. I'm, uh, you know, I'm in a position of privilege where I've had all this corporate work for years that I was doing, A, because I really enjoyed it, B, because right. it paid great money. And to me, it was one of those things where I I, I chose to do a lot of it because uh, it paid well and I could take that money to, to fund the art, Yeah, you know? Mm. And then all of a sudden, all you're doing is corporate. Because, you know, the, the bookings are coming in and you're not doing the art. And, yeah. and so I've got this kind of, I've always had a, a little bit of a financial backstop that I've saved up from doing all of this, thinking that the corporate work would stop, not that everything would stop. Um, <laughs> and so now I will now I will, I will sort of do that out. So with it, I think there'll be a lot of, um, while the kind of the next sort of 10 to to 12 months or so we're probably not going to see a lot of international acts no. we're going to have the country to ourselves mm. uh, in many ways people will want to re-engage if they are going out with local performers and and i think there's a huge opportunity for people to look for kind of innovative ways of getting out to the public right. and, and just and just plying their craft and, and maybe reinventing you know instead of having to take a huge big setup just getting you know people love the little intimate gigs yeah you know, imagine, you know, a band that just decides, you know what, we're, we're going to just make this tour small and, and do maybe smaller rooms without a big setup and, right. and just get people to come and have a, a good time. Or, or comics, um, you know, it's a little bit, a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to do, you know, a, a, a Zoom or a Skype or a comedy show because there's no audience yeah. here. Well, that's, I mean, there is. They're just at home. It's just a different medium. Right. And, it, you know, again, it's it's finding your feet within different mediums. Mm. Um, I remember that I toured um, Canada. It was one of the sort of the 
um, formative experiences of my comedy career. I'd never done an hour-long show, and we booked to go to the Canadian Fringe, which was incredible on so many levels. Right. Um, to do the first kind of hour-long show, and, and how, we how did, long had your shows been up until then? Oh, about thirty minutes. Right. You know, and I was I was I was tag teaming with Brendan Lovegrove. Yep. If we were doing a show, it was easier for us to do a, a, a good thirty, and then I would so he would do fifteen, and I would do fifteen, and he would do fifteen, and I would do fifteen. Right. And, uh, other than one night in Edinburgh, where he walked on stage and um, asked a woman, you know, how pregnant she was, and she said, "I'm not pregnant," <laughs> no. and the crowd turned on them, and he literally he, he'd been on stage maybe forty five seconds, and I just watched him leave the room, and I was like, "Oh man, I've got to do fifty five minutes." He just bailed. He just he gave just, up. He, he just, just literally <laughs> walked through the room and up the stairs and out of the venue um but over there see you know the thought of doing a show at 11 o'clock in the morning yeah that who, who does comedy at 11 o'clock in the morning well yeah. in canada on some of the fringes you get you get every slot through the course of the week they'll give you an 11 o'clock a two o'clock in the afternoon a three o'clock uh an eight o'clock at night and 10 30 wow and, and that could be on any day you know so that everyone gets a different time slot so you know i i well remember doing comedy at 11 o'clock in the morning in a 300 seat room to three people two of whom i knew uh and you never think about it at the time you, of course i did it because yeah. you, you do it and then since then you know all of that's great training i've done corporates to, to to six people at a boardroom table right yeah kind of thing so you know it's all of these little things so i think if anything comes out of this it'll be a way for people to reinterpret the nature of their performance right what does it mean and what about the the background stuff like the the, the business of it you know because i mean oh, I, i've the, got i've got lots of friends who are professional musicians who only yeah. who only play live and all of their work got cancelled but the musicians of course I, who have a side gig they're in a better spot right now yeah oh man i i i know i, I yeah. just my agent keeps emailing me and apologizing that there's more work cancelled and it's just like right. wow that's going to happen yeah and, and you know I've, I've just seen the calendar just empty mm. uh, and it's depressing i'm getting constant reminders on my phone of flights i'm supposed to be on right are you supposed to? Oh, I'm not, I'm not, last night i had an anxiety dream about missing a flight um <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the live scene is going to do. Yeah. Anything I say would just be abject speculation. I, I, I think that people have always wanted to be around other people, but this right. may this may temper that for God, it could be twelve months. Yeah. So that live stuff, what do you do? Do you you know, is there gonna be some kind of aspirational thing where we get out and we can go and bloody work in the conservation corps and put some plant some trees or put some tracks in or do mm. some kind of thing will there be a living wage paid to people who want to you know um what what is the financial benefit of 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 paying a living wage to people who had proved you know that they did have a career that had been hampered by this for them to like an arts grant of right. some kind yeah uh you know you know who know a universal basic income a lot of people are saying well now's not really the time for that what would that do to the kind of creative sector mm. um it's an interesting one. I saw, uh, who was it? Um, Mike, 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 used to be at Saatchi and Saatchi, um, an older guy, and he's got does a lot of work around creativity and stuff. He says, look, New Zealand's poised for this. He says, what the, what, all, all of the, the HR things were saying, what people need in the future is is creative people with empathy and this, that, and, you know, it, it, all those soft skills. Yeah. And we're really blessed with that. Do we really move towards making sure people are, are doing the work in those kind of areas so that when things do whatever you know the future holds we're ready to kind of go right who knows yeah you know 
if if we if we do get rid of a lot of the kind of um, virus and we do keep the borders locked down, maybe we will see overseas productions going. You know what? It's worth sending everyone down, quarantining them for two weeks, and then letting them letting them film and record or do whatever it is down here for five months. Yeah, possibly. It, it may be. A, maybe you yeah. know we've got all the facilities. Yeah. But and, and yeah, in terms of that live thing where, where people's where people rely on other people paying money to turn up to a venue, mm. or or you know, and I'm thinking, uh, you know, all those um, un- underappreciated people who sit in the corner of pubs on a Saturday afternoon and play <laughs> great music, you know, uh, no one's audience is directly paying them but the venues are you know what right. what happens to that kind of thing i don't know exactly and i don't know another subject that's somewhat that's related to this that i've always thought about is the subject of security in life and and it, it's been on my mind the whole time because i was the young guy in a band who wanted to pursue music and people said you know you've got to get a real job you, you're going to be uh, too vulnerable it's not going to work and you know and so i set up Myself as a professional musician, I went full time in 2005, and three years later, um, the economy collapsed. <laughs> and what yes. I saw was a lot of people who had the conventional life, they had the, the job and the house and, and everything, a lot of those people ended up really struggling and, and often losing their houses and things like that. And I was I was actually okay. I mean, I took a big hit and I navigated myself through it, but because I ran my own business, I had the opportunity to be flexible and to, to kind of ride the storm a little bit more, whereas other people who had mortgaged up to their eyeballs were just knocked out yeah and now it's sort of happening again i mean i guess in a worse way uh you know and there but for the grace of good fortune and being slightly too picky about houses <laughs> go <laughs> i like we we we'll be looking to move up I've, I've been in this place in, in in henderson uh for like 15 years i bought it right 15 years ago super yep. cheap uh we were looking to kind of go and we looked at some places and and you know even in my worst case scenario we thought oh yeah we could cover a mortgage of that much yep. you know I, i'm really glad we don't have to think about that at this point in yeah. time you know we paid my house off right um years ago because it was and you know and it is an interesting thing that kind of will it change the nature of what people want from life right. will they want the bigger house the mortgage the, the, the or will they go you know what things could change i want yeah. the kind of security and you know what i just i actually do want to do what i want to do i want to do my, uh, you know, my art, my music, my creativity. Well, that's and kind it is of an my interesting point, one, you know, because security is sort of a myth in a way, isn't it? I mean, if you think you're secure yeah. because you've you've ticked the right boxes, are you really secure? And when we find out, well, not really, because a virus can come around and knock around the whole world. Oh. You know, so oh, a bloody, vi- a bloody I, I, virus. So I'm, it wasn't I, on my list of things. <laughs> my, exactly, and my point is, I, I'm actually trying to make a positive point in the sense that it's like none of us are really that secure. So why not live our life to the fullest? You know, why not pursue our dreams? Because we're yeah. all, you know, there's really no real risk because we're all at risk anyway, arguably. That, yeah. 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 I think so. And the interesting thing, you know, I think about that the sort of the GFC that you were you were talking about. Um, you know, there there are certain industries that do come through well. Comedy always survives well in a depression. Right. Uh, and probably music and entertainment because people want to get out. This depression being different and that nobody wants to go out, they <laughs> yeah, want to stay home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna be I wanna be in my bubble. Uh, or socially isolated. So I mean that, that that is that kind of financial difference that none of us had had anticipated. But yeah, I, yeah. I hope that people can find a way to, to continue to do things. Whatever that may be for them, right. yeah, exactly, and, and a way for people to support that. There's plenty of people out there as well looking, looking at and platforms to to monetize or to support mm. that kind of thing. You've seen a lot of artists now sitting in, as you know, as you are at the end of a Zoom thing, 
playing concerts, little mini concerts, and people are loving it and, and tuning in. And I, and I think people will become increasingly used to that. I, I, you know, you can do it in comedy. There are theater monologues being done. There are, was a competition a couple of weeks ago, the Glow, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, down, Center Point down in Palmerston North ran like a, a one weekend play competition where someone had to write a one person little short monologue yep. and then actors had to perform that. So there'll be lots and lots of ways. And, you know, we're very used to looking at screens now and used to looking at people performing, you know. And so, yeah, I think there's a there's a world of opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And we're a week now away from when our lockdown is possibly going to end. And now there's a possibly. huge amount of debate, huge amount of debate in the media about which way we should go. Where do you land on that? Are you Do you have an opinion? Oh, look, I think we've... I, I'm glad that I don't have to have an opinion that anyone <laughs> yeah. pays attention to. to. I feel the same it's way. Not it's up not to up me, to me. You know, yeah. it's, it's like uh, there is going to be so – once we come out of this bubble and we see where people aren't, it's mm. going to be the emptiness of people where suddenly familiar things are gone. I just – the analogy I use is uh, there's a little supermarket here in Henderson on Alderman Drive, a pack and save. I shopped it there for, for 15 years, right. and I loved the people who worked there. I had a relationship with them. I knew their life and their stories, and I'd, sometimes I'd met their kids, and they'd seen my daughter grow up over the last kind of four and a half years, and then they closed it to rebuild it, and they just weren't there anymore. Right. And that's uh, that was a good example, I think, of what's going to happen when we go back out. These suddenly people that we expect to to see on our day to day life, it just aren't going to be there. Yeah. That the cafes or the restaurants or the bars or the little business on the corner that we used to go in and get something done at. So there's going to be all of this kind of dislocation. Not to mention but major if, companies like like magazines that will now no oh, longer. I mean, how tri- like, how big was that? Like, Burger King. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, magazines. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, for God's sake, uh, what is it, 470-odd people in media lose their jobs yeah. in the last 10 days. That is uh, – and we uh, – it's funny to be in a bubble and, and to talk about that, and I've seen people on social media who've kind of lost their jobs or mm. know people, but it still just seems unreal. It won't be until we get back into the world and experience this emptiness right. that we're going to go – Oh my God! But it also it, so, it, you know, it surprises me how fast it happened because that company fell down yeah. after after what two weeks or something. I thought, how? I mean, uh, is this a strategy or were they that vulnerable in the first place? Oh, look, there are so again, it's so there's so many complicating factors. You know, yeah. Bauer had been trying to offload that for a long time, and you know, this was an opportunity. And then that goes to the long decline of media through online loss of revenue and, right. and, and advertising dollars and all of these complicated things in terms of the to the answer to the actual question what do I think should happen I I, I honestly I, I don't know I mean mm. if we, we do have the opportunity here to to really stamp out things you, you look at places like Singapore and other places that went, we're on top of it we've cracked down we've loosened up suddenly that second surge has yeah. come back through exactly you know they're saying the second surge is often worse the, the Spanish uh, influenza of at the end of World War One. it was the second surge that came through um, but then you've got you know Oh, the economy, people, businesses, life. Yeah. You know, what happens? You know, Treasury was predicting possibly 26 unemployment, uh, percent unemployment. What happens to people in society when, when, when you've got that, no jobs, and, and your, your heart disease, and your poverty, and your children in poverty, and and kids learning? And oh, God, what a. I, I just sit at home in Henderson and I built bookshelves to put my research books on for my New Zealand next New Zealand history project because they were languishing in a box I thought well I'm going to have plenty of time to read them right you know uh, you know what I mean yeah. it's it's this that and you see you see the arguments coming through and the kind of partisanship on either side I definitely think 
it's important to have debate around mm. it. Yeah. I don't think that, you know, they were talking about those 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 dudes that came through with the plan B and everyone just poo-pooed them and castigated them. You know what? Right. It's Debate's important. A- and it's important as well that, that someone puts up that concept and says, well, we think it sh- we should unlock straight away because the economy, and then a whole lot of people come in and go, well, actually, no, that's not a good idea for this because it helps those of us who aren't up with all of the kind of epidemiological arguments and the yeah. financial arguments to go, actually, you know what? Yeah, that makes sense. I can understand that now. But there are different so, ways of debating, aren't there? And we've been, we've, been oh, so yeah. di- we've been so divisive in the world in the last few years, thanks to certain presidents and other people. But, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, there's there's a kind of a fuck you from either side kind of debate, and then there's a listening to each other and hearing each other's yeah. point of view kind of debate. Yeah, and empathy and kindness. You exactly. know, and part of yeah. that is the social media platform. It's it's hard to get nuance and subtlety and irony mm. in 180 characters. That's right. Uh, on, on Twitter or or on Facebook. Um, you know, and again, uh, God, if you, I remember watching, you know, the, uh, the Carol uh, Cadwaller documentary on the, on the algorithms, the you know, the UK election, how those those big things you know the russian bots and and we're seeing a lot of talk around the russians being the ones who are perpetrating that 5g myth and you know years and years (laughs) ago uh, i was talking to someone who was a student of russian politics and they said the best way to destroy the west is to allow them to destroy themselves (laughs) right you know and so all of this kind of thing whether it's the anti-vaccination things the (laughs) 5g you know all of that just being fed and you know now we're seeing people for god's sake burning bloody cell phone towers right um, yeah and here in new zealand yeah. in new zealand <laughs> you know it's like oh my god so i don't know it's been a crazy mixed up world mm. and, and and things you know the inequality and various other things maybe there is a chance for a reset what i what i want i've been saying for years i like aspirational people right aspirational leaders you know who come out and go there can be not only can there be a better way this is the way we're going to do it. Yes. Get on board. Exactly. And this is the first and time. No shortage uh, of them. This is really the first time our generation, or or, or our, uh, you know, anyone al- I guess alive, arguably, has faced such such a big challenge, like a global yeah. emergency. And I mean, I, yeah. I, I I don't know if, if everyone else would relate to this too, but I guess in the back of my mind, I've always wondered. What would I? How would I react, or how would I deal yeah. with a global event like a major world war? And I guess now we're finding out, aren't we? And, and, and yeah. I, I've actually been there's, there's all the crazy people that come out of the woodwork, but I've actually been really amazed by all the acts of kindness and generosity that I've witnessed as well. And man, yeah. fr- friendships are getting tighter, and it's, there are so many positives um, that can oh, come there's out. There's a, of this a sort of huge amount of positives. Yeah. The other positive is, of course, that you know it's just it's a financial thing. We're not suddenly out on the street because someone's bombed our house, right? You know. Exactly. We're not, yeah. we're not Syria, you know, and you look at Syria or, or I, I always think of the likes of Lebanon, Lebanon being this place that people used to flock to, this paradise, this Mecca, yeah. you know, and then suddenly that civil war came through and the place got destroyed. Sarajevo, modern cities, mm. you know, that, that so quickly transcend into this kind of genocidal craziness. We've just got a a bloody flu in a bit of a financial crisis, <laughs> right, yeah. you know. So there are, as you say, there are those kind of those kind of positives. Um, but even on the financial crisis, what I'm curious to see is after the the you know the meltdown ten years ago, it took a while for everyone to kind of get faith in the system again. And you know, so yeah. the 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 economy was arguably functioning again pretty soon, um, but just took a while for everyone to get their confidence back. I wonder yeah, if yeah. that process will be shorter this time because we're not waiting for an economy to get its confidence back necessarily. We're 
we're just waiting for us to get moving again. So once we're moving again, yeah, I, w- I yeah, wonder yeah. if it'll write itself a lot faster. And we've also, as well as that, seen a lot of people who have developed their own little businesses yeah. in, in that kind of, inter- inter- uh, uh, you know, 10 years or however it was. You know, we've seen, particularly like in the rural sector, little butchers and cheesemakers, coffee grinders, uh, you know, the little cafes, the little all those little tiny businesses. I wonder if we will see a sort of a, um, a groundswell of people if they've managed to sustain their businesses continuing on right. or other people whose whose jobs and careers have disappeared and who think, you know what, I always wanted to be a sausage maker. <laughs> exactly. I always wanted to be a baker or a candlestick maker yeah. or a cobbler. I, I wonder, and, you know, and as well that we're now seeing that, that, that reliance upon one great manufacturer of all of the consumer goods we need. Mm. Um, You know, I think there'll be a backlash in some ways maybe against supermarkets for people who can afford to to go, you know what, they they had their run and they provided that kind of necessity. But now I'm actually going to go and support all those local businesses. I'm going to go to the greengrocer and I'm going to go to the butcher and I'm going to go to the baker. Um, whether people will want to to live their lives in that kind of way, because that is also a a time-consuming sort of process. You know, one of the great things about a supermarket, if you look at the history of shopping, was it just reduced the time it took to go and buy all of your stuff, a one-stop shop. But that raises an interesting question, because, and I've thought about this many times, is that we keep doing things to save time, and then we take our experience of life away. You know, and yeah. when, I, when I think about when I was a kid and mum would pop into the butcher and, and would get Cheerios and things like that, that, yeah. that was like my favorite part of the day, you know? Yeah. And I love, I love again, going around the corner to the local veggie shop. It's great. And there's a chance then to have a relationship as well That's with right. the person that you don't often get in, say, a, 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 maybe a slightly more faceless person supermarket yeah yeah you know, i enjoyed my little supermarket that was small and never quite had all the things you wanted to have because it was a real personal kind of experience it was like a glorified super yeah. you know and so what's going to happen even the likes of all of that technology um, yeah you know and if you think about technology now they're saying you know um with the tracking oh we've got to we've got to get all the tech so we can track people in case mm-hmm. there's an outbreak and, this, and <laughs> those those outfits once that once that tracking and whatnot's and they never let go of that right they, you know <laughs> oh we'll, we'll turn it off turn it off when the when the cold season with the flu's over yeah right when covid's done it's like you know you won't (laughs) the great thing is you know we we have and 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 particularly when the lockdown starts to loosen up and we can start buying some more stuff there will be people who you know artistically who've probably had a really good think about what it is they can do yeah and they will for you know it's relatively relatively cheap probably cheaper than it's ever been really to set yourself up with a system and so we will see people um using all of these you know these tools you can basically you know podcast or, or stream or or you know the the uh, tiktok whatever it may be mm. it's all there you know and or for a couple of hundred bucks you can get a little mixing desk and you can record yeah. you know like we're doing today from a distance and it will probably sound as if we're in the same room and no one will ever know you know so yeah. there will be all of those little things will be people who are saying you know I, I'm, I'm going to put a music video together I'm going to learn how to do it because I can't get anyone else to kind of do it I don't have any money for it so I think I think there will be a lot of creativity I, I think I'm, so I'm too yeah. there will be. I mean I haven't said anything online yet but some uh, some of my colleagues and I have actually been recording a song together by recording our parts yeah. se- separately and passing it around and now we're yeah. about we've recorded it and now we're about to start making a music video and it's actually come together really well and I was talking to the drummer yesterday and he goes what what this has made me think is why didn't we do this before? Why did it take a virus and a lockdown for us to sort of go? Well, we should we should record a song together. Yeah, and it's like well, yeah, there's no good reason. No, so all all of that kind of collaboration, or whether it's a, that creative collaboration, a technological collaboration, mm. um, I, I think that's all going to be you know 
tickety-boo. I've got projects that I've been meaning to do for years. I've got a, a, a documentary that I've... I, First one I ever made on on Timor. That's just re- really relying on on literally twenty five seconds of voiceover to be changed in the middle before I put it up on a platform and, um, and <laughs> that stream all? it. I, I really, I really, I really must get, I really must get around to it. Uh, you know, all of these little things. And so I think people will finish projects. I think hopefully they might even go back to their. I've been tidying up my my garage because it's just full of just these boxes of bloody archives. You yeah, know, and go yeah. back to those early things and and, and maybe reassess that journey of creativity they've been on to look back at those early notes and go oh man that's right that's oh i was going to do that and do this and and you know i think it i mean from my position of, of financial privilege and that i'm pretty stable i do have the luxury of doing that going oh what oh what project will i do right. you know the wolf is not currently at the door and i i think that's different does it make me you know i think about this all the time what 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 makes someone hungry artistically yeah you know sometimes it is that pressure of i've just got to keep creating i've got to figure out how to monetize this and, and then you can get a little bit complacent where you think well i, I can take three months on this project because there's nothing else that's going right. on yeah so, but it's I also mean, nice sometimes to be creative without uh, uh, some kind of agenda some kind of commercial agenda you know art for yeah. art's sake like i love yeah, i love yeah. writing music sometimes when i when i think in many ways the music industry has been set free because it's so hard now to get a song on the radio that yeah that if someone turns around and says well that's not going to you know work on the radio you can say so what you weren't going to play it anyway so i'm going to write a 25 minute prog jam <laughs> you know and, uh, and it will be yeah. amazing and it'll be and, amazing and the thing is now yeah all it takes is for someone to pick that up and go oh shit this is good and yeah. then give it a little signal boost and say someone else picks it up and that ability you know never in the history of humankind can we create our own audiences of a global nature and right. scale from the comfort of our own bedrooms <laughs> unless you've been in online pornography um <laughs> Yeah. I actually thought, I thought creatively about using um, the Chatterbait platform, you know, those online <laughs> where people can, can you know, tip people who are at home, you know, I assume they, I don't know where they are, you know, right. performing. I thought, surely there's a monetization platform just ripe for actually just doing art. Of just saying, I'm just going to be on this platform and I'm just going to talk for ages. If you're expecting something, there's nothing sexual, but you know, <laughs> use their use their platform, right? Because because it's it's set up to monetize people in their you know in a room. I right. haven't really spent a lot of time on the platform or, or <laughs> looking at understanding the how it works <laughs> yeah. or look. Yeah. No, but yeah. I did when this yeah. first started happening. I people said, oh, you know, oh, what do you know? I said, just come over to my chatterbait. <laughs> you know and the funny thing is actually maybe there is something in there again it goes back to the innovation what is a platform that already exists right. and is really easy for people that i can disrupt yeah. and use for that and actually suddenly if you are you know a comic doing reading your reading a book i've got a whole i could just go on that and just start reading a book and talking and but and suddenly you know people go oh man have you seen that guy on you know on <laughs> Chatter, mate? Yeah. i mean there's a lot of porn to wade through to find where you are but you right. know what i mean yeah these things exist and and there's a kind of a sense of 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 um uh, anarchic fun around something like that now that i've said it actually i'm really keen to I'm actually just now looking at a whole bookshelf of books, and I'm thinking, what, what one will I start off with? With my career of just reading books, that, yeah, <laughs> on pornography um, tip sites. <laughs> 
Because there might even be people who find that a little bit sexy. I, hey, I would feel quite privileged. I'd be. I'd feel quite privileged if you actually made this happen, and this is where it began. Hey, man, this is where you, the idea I, began. Really, I totally, I totally <laughs> should. But you know, there's no shortage of ways of doing things out there, and and, and uh, you know, as you say, you've you've guys have experience with putting something together i've seen lots mm. of people and in terms of music like i'm listening to a lot of music yeah. and, I, and i'm particularly live music um all recorded as live so you know the npr tiny discs things oh that's and amazing, that's been a great it? thing tiny you know so and, and we've seen it yeah. here on on uh rnz you know um jc's show I, I love that little thing some of my favorite gigs some mm. of the best bands the best music i've discovered are those little 15 or 20 minute tiny discs um, what's the other one? KP, KPR, KPR, KP. Well, there's a like a, a station in the states, a radio station, you know, that again does the same thing, slightly longer. Yeah, they break it up with some interviews. Uh, you know, uh, who have I been watching? Uh, so Death Cab for Cutie, National. Um, I'm really obsessed with Orville Peck at the moment. Oh yeah, Orville Peck. Don't know you know, them. and I yeah. went to Orville, Orville Peck's gig. I went to that at the start of the year. And oh man, here's the other thing. You know, disrupting even the nature of the the time that you perform. He performed at the Tuning Fork. Um, you know, at the big arena there in Auckland on a Sunday night. Right. You know, there is no one in that part. I thought, oh, and I and I parked. I drove in from Henderson. I thought, oh, I have to park up the right. I parked quite a long way away. Go, oh, there's a park. I'll park there because I'm so used to there being. I could literally have parked right outside. <laughs> there was a park right outside the Tuning. <laughs> fork on a sunday night <laughs> you know i love those kind of gigs outside of the normal times yeah um, yeah now do you, you know, consider yourself to be uh a daredevil an adventurer oh, i don't know yeah because there's been a, there's been a lot of adventure in your career and there've been a lot of yeah. a lot of things that you've done that would uh, you know naturally associate with a daredevil but do you see yourself I that suppose. way i mean uh, what was going through your brain when you dived into the antarctic ocean um i'm very glad i'm tied to a rope and there is a doctor handy in case my heart <laughs> stops look i you know again it's that thing you you never know where a career is going to go and no. you seize opportunities and, and and i've you know i've been incredibly fortunate that that good opportunities came along i think you know there was a sense we i did a a, a drama course at otago um at allen hall uh back in the early 90s and it was all about the real theme there was all this work that you had to do i didn't i was a terrible student but right. but what i took from it was you, you you create your own work you do what you want to do and yeah. you just keep doing it and it will morph and change and find a new form but if you if you're true to what you want to do so all of it's just stemmed from the sense of, of doing that and actually even prior to that i mean when i was a kid the, the thing i wanted to do i wanted to make documentaries that's what right. i wanted to do i yeah. wanted to be a war correspondent because i would sit there and i would watch Afghanistan, back on Foreign Correspondent and other places, um, and I was reading Commander Comics. It seems stupid to say it out loud, but but I just I really wanted to be a war correspondent, and I was really fascinated with what went on in the lives of people, not the shooting, all of that, but how did people live in situations like this? How did they get on? Right. How did they get food, and what did they do, and what was the entertainment like, and how crazy was it? Um, and, and that was a driver through then into sort of into drama, and then drama led to inadvertently to comedy. Yeah. And then I was doing comedy, and I was doing a lot of stand up because at the time, back in the early nineties, there was a lot of stand ups, particularly in the UK, being picked up for documentaries. And I thought I'll do the stand up, and maybe someone will see me, and maybe I'll get a documentary. Oh, and, right. and music played a big part of that. So the yeah. Gathering, one of my first docos, um, uh, directed by um, the wonderful Jess Feast, and produced by Carthew Neal, who was at Gibson Group then, but is now, you know. Oscar nominated producer Carthew Neal, uh, along with, you know, he works with Tyka and, and Tickled and various other kind of, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and the other great thing is when you've been around for a long time, to see other people just doing their thing right. and being 
crazy successful and while at the same time just being relentlessly them yeah yeah so um so yeah so this whole thing i comedy was always a big thing and i loved it but it was always this kind of wanted to be a gateway to documentaries and then since then i've been all over the world antarctica and you know but comedy is a very involved pursuit isn't it so if you're saying you saw it it's a self and it's a (laughs) self-involved pursuit (laughs) well i mean it's it's interesting that you sort of saw it as a strategy or a stepping stone because i know uh, i'm a huge fan of comedians i've never done it myself but I've listened to loads of comedians talk about the whole process that goes into it and how hard it is to get a good 10 minutes, let alone an hour. And the the, the discipline is incredible. And, oh, yeah, and, discipline was something I lacked. <laughs> <laughs> so, but to, to take something that is such a, 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 an involved craft and to sort of see it as a, that'll get me to an open door to something else. That's That must be yeah, unique, right? Because most comedians uh, must uh, be just all into comedy. No, I mean you've got a lot of comic comedians that want to get into, into I guess, into movies or or, right. or or things like that. It's it sounds deliberate and contrived, but it wasn't because I mean I loved comedy. You've got to love comedy to do comedy because it can be so hard, yeah, emotionally and psychologically difficult. And there's been just some of the worst times through all of that where you literally think I'm you know I'm I'm going to give up. But but again, <laughs> you know, it can be. It's like, a com- you know, comedy and probably people, have, you probably hear people say that it is, a, it's a drug, you know, yeah. and, and people say, you know, when you're chasing that tiger when, with heroin or something like that, comedy is that when you get that first big laugh and that first round of applause and really early on, two or three gigs into my career, I was with a group called Spleen, our first ever gig at the comedy uh, competition for universities down in Wellington. So it was Duncan Sarkis and Jesse Griffin, who's Wilson Dixon amongst other kind of people and, and a friend of mine Aaron and you know we did the set and we got a massive standing ovation you know and we won the competition it, that's that's a hard dragon to find again yeah over right. the years yeah. you know you're always chasing and reinventing it but what was the first time you performed stand-up and how did it go oh look I, I I'm gonna actually go back and say it was at primary school and I we did a music. We did Treasure Island, the musical at primary school, a rural primary school, and right. I wanted to be in the choir, but I couldn't sing. And they said, "Oh well, we need someone to be the narrator. You can just read." And, I thought, <laughs> oh, oh. Nice. and then once I realised, yeah. "Wait a second, you are the dude. You are the central. You're the reedy read. You're the right. guy that everybody's listening to. This yeah. is amazing." Um, I don't know. I can't remember whether I made it funny. But suddenly, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna go and just say, look, that was probably one of the turning points. We went, hey, I can be the funny kind of guy and do yeah. all of this. So, and then there were sort of debates at school. There's a speech I gave at the end of boarding school um, where uh, I don't remember any of it, but people still come up today and go, oh man, that speech that you gave on that last night where you laid into all the masters and it was right. like still one of the funniest things I've ever heard and. You know, comedy as well, it's, it's very ephemeral. Yeah. It's it, it's there and the laugh happens. It's like live music, you know. It's there and then suddenly it's not there anymore. Mm. And it's as if it never existed. Yeah, that's right. Um, so a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff is lost. But, um, yeah, I, I think it sort of came through there. And the other thing that I was quite deliberate about in terms of, like, a, a career, you know, you were talking about discipline. I was a really ill-disciplined comic. I left Varsity and I came to Auckland and I moved out to Odeity Point and there was a guy next to me who was, um, I think he was on the run from some drug dealers in town who had a lot of drugs and we just smoked a lot of pot and I was supposed to be writing comedy and I and, and I was already only doing that because I discovered you could get paid to turn up and speak and I went, this sounds great. Uh, I'll do that until I figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Um, and, and, and so I, I just could not write I couldn't sit down and write material. Some people are amazing at it. Mm. So what I did was I, I, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll challenge myself to turn up uh, at Kitty O'Brien's or the Classic, whatever it was back then, with no material and do something brand new every night. Wow. That way, that way, that's a, that's a, 
what did, what did it do? That, that's a deliberate strategy. It's not just being lazy. This is a this is a form and a format. So you're, uh, so you're justifying. And, you're justifying. Yeah, I justified it. And <laughs> yeah. so what I ended up yeah. doing now, when I look back at it, you know, you have a lot of time to sort of look back introspectively. What, what it did was it meant that I could turn up anywhere, anytime and improvise. Right. Really didn't mind. Didn't mind. Nothing through me. Yeah. And so when you're making docos and you've got a very limited quick something's happening, you've got to say something about that. You know, it... it, it, it it basically paved the way for that ability to go all around the world and have something to say or to relate to somebody very, very quickly. But when you went out on stage with that with that strategy or lack thereof, did you fall on your face a yeah. few times before it sort of oh, started, oh, started uh, to click? Often multiple times during the same gig, <laughs> but then you would have to bring it back. And, right, and some right. of the, 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 the most fun and the greatest routines of, of my life um, you know, came through that. And you would say something and then you think, oh, actually, I quite like the sound of that. Yeah. And then the next week you would try to remember what it was and you would shape it into a different form, you know, um, and then it would, it, it would just... You know, because you listen, this you, thing. you listen to people like Bill Burr and, and those sorts of comedians from America, and they talk a lot about the timing and just getting the pause right before the next statement, and and, mm, all, all, mm. and and I always wonder is that something that they and it's probably different for every comedian, but is that something that they really mathematically work out? Like if I if I count oh, to th- it, if I count to three in my head before I say, or, or is it more of an instinctive thing? Do you think it's a music thing? Music it's thing. A, right. There's a musicality to comedy. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the most the greatest exponents of the musicality of comedy in New Zealand is Mike King. I had the great pleasure, you know, mm. his material wasn't for everyone, but he had the rhythm. Right. You know, and I, I saw him, I toured with him twice nationally. So what, 30 nights in a row, you know, rooming with me. But I, I would watch him every night. Yeah. Uh, and I, even though some of the jokes, I went, oh, this is a little bit, odd, but I would just watch the timing. Like it's, it's a little bit like boxing. Yeah. You know, that kind of one, two, three, soften them up. And then people would be laughing and then he would just punch them right in the laugh box right. you know his his timing was amazing and it is a musicality you yeah. know you, you you would know people who are competent musicians mm. who just kind of don't have that it that thing that x yes. factor that that innate ability to create from nothing this real sense of rhythm and vibe and fun yes so, that's right you know it, it, it is that the other thing i did to compensate for whether or not people was laughing was i just talked faster i just talked <laughs> relentlessly i didn't stop talking i didn't give people a chance to laugh or not laugh right you know and that was part of it as well because i always said the, the worst it's fine for people to not like you yeah. and not like what you say the worst crime is to be boring right you know right. you either want to be hated or loved you don't want to be just like oh that was all right <laughs> you know you know you don't want to be boring yeah yeah because i've noticed about a lot of with a lot of comedians that i've watched that they often seem to have this uh like a plan b in place for if they don't get the laugh you know they say the thing and then they just hold for just a second to see if the laugh kicks in and what like with um joan rivers for example i noticed that her thing was to say it was just she would go blah Uh blah 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 blah, punchline it was just and that gave her two options if she got the laugh she would stop and wait for the laugh to pass if she didn't get the laugh she'd finish the sentence it was just ridiculous you can see it with comics you know you can see once you and and theater as well you know Big theatre background. Once you can see the strings, it's very hard to just enjoy, mm. to detach and just enjoy. But then at the same time, when you then do see something and you realise you have detached and absolutely loved it, that's right. that's a great moment. And and I think particularly, you know, down here in Little Old New Zealand, we had some of the best comics in the world in the last 25 years coming through. You know, yeah. we had some people, so Scott at the Classic and the Comedy Festival, who who encouraged some of the of the the. the very successful but probably not hugely mainstream acts to 
to, to grace us with their presence. And I remember really early on, you know, and people say, why do you, you know, how good do you think, why are you going to do this? And very, very early comedy festival uh, came to Auckland and it was um, so Ardell O'Hanlon, Bill Bailey, Simon Pegg, yeah. uh, and a couple of others. They were young guys, not much older than us, and, and they were doing the most incredible comedy. And we looked at it and we thought, we can do that. Right. You know, it's that ability to, to, to see that what you want is not outside of your reach. Yeah. It's like a musician who, who wants to be a musician and they think, oh, these people are so amazing. And then suddenly you go and see them and you go, you know what? I can do that. Mm. I can do that thing. Yeah. And and if I keep doing my thing, maybe that thing will happen. It's having that self-belief to just not listen to the critics, you know, or the naysayers, um, and particularly your own inner critic, and just kind of getting on with it. Um, and this is really greatly exemplified. I've been really into the Idols uh, recently, an English kind of post-punk band uh, from from well, from England. Right. Um, and, and I've been I've been quite interested in the kind of background of some of these people. But the, the guy's story, um, you know, they they'd been around for ages, yeah. ages and ages. And then suddenly, um, the guys he had a drug addiction problem, and then he was looking after his mum who had cancer for all these years. Right. And, and drugs were his kind of. When I went out, I really just went out, and because I knew that I had to go back home and I had to look after my mum and. We reached this point, he said, um, where we just either we were going to make it or we were not going to make it. People said, yeah. you're too old, you're in your late 20s. He said, we just sat down, we didn't listen to what anybody said. We turned off all the critics, all the criticism, and we just did us. Yeah. So, you know, just don't don't listen to them. Don't, <laughs> and it's easy in a lockdown to not listen to the critics because <laughs> there's no one around. But speaking about being yourself, I think I've got a working theory that for a lot of people, especially in entertainment, eccentric characters, comedy, musicians, whatever, often the thing that works for them really well as an adult and as a professional backfired on them as a kid because the thing that makes them funny or makes them interesting or unique was the thing that made them stood out when they were younger and made them a target. So uh, yeah. how do you, Does is, is that true for you? Like what were you like as a kid? Oh, uh, like frail and very white. Uh, like very, <laughs> by white I mean like could not get a tan and thus was constantly mocked for just being the whitest kid <laughs> In the world, in fact, I got called Elby for a while. I was right. so white. So you know, um, and I, I wasn't very good at sport. Uh, yeah. And so yes, uh, you know, particularly then I went to boarding school from the third form all the way through to the seventh form. So you know, yes, words and humour were a way of getting you out of situations and sometimes into situations that you didn't really want. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you know, everything had to be verbal. And, and you know, and, and when you're in an institution like a like a boarding school, you know, there's a lot of a lot of studies around the difference between male and female comedy. Right. And and and, and that one that that upmanship that men have boys have you know that that quick repartee that's quite different from the way that women interact with each other. So yeah, you know, if you want to throw, if you want to think maybe my kid could be a comic, just throw them into the 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 cauldron of childhood boarding school i used to think that it was my parents getting used to me you know or me getting used to being institutionalized but right. really it was perfect for the lockdown i mean i've been grounded so many times at boarding school this is second nature you're well to me, you're well practiced being stuck at home yeah. oh, i'm totally well practiced and i've actually been in lockdown for a lot longer than most other people because um i went to womad uh and there was a lot of conjecture as to whether or not womad should have happened this year and you know, and I was going, oh, God, do I really want to go? But I was scheduled to perform, and that was freaking me out because it's been a long time since I've done comedy, especially an hour on a stage outside yeah, like that. Yeah, I was freaking out about it. Um, but, like, it was it was just one of the best gigs. I saw some of the just, you know, yeah, it's good to go out sometimes and just remember how great people can be. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and I think once this happens, it's going to be great to go out and to see people out 
and just rocking it, doing whether it's music or comedy or theatre or street performance yeah, or, yeah. Or, 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 or or cooking or, you know, whatever it is, to just get back amongst people. Absolutely, and, you know, and, yeah. So with your original goal to, to make documentaries, you, you obviously got to that. And so you, you actually realized your dream in a way, which must have been pretty amazing. Yeah. And you traveled through some pretty dangerous places when you were making some of these documentaries. And you said before, you're talking about the, the day-to-day lifestyles of the people that live in some of these war-torn countries and so on. What was it mm. like uh, being there with your crew? Because you guys also had to function to, to do that, obviously. You had to get up in the morning and get a coffee and something to eat and get to the place you're going to and all the boring stuff, which... How, how does that work in a country that's full of conflict? And what did you notice about the day-to-day experience of the people that live there? Oh, we kind of did it in an unorthodox way. The two kind of war documentaries I made, one was, was Timor, mm. and, and we never really thought we were going to get there. Like, you know, I... I borrowed some home video cameras from friends and I convinced a friend of mine, Aaron, who'd been in Spleen, uh, to, to be a cameraman and he wasn't a cameraman. Right. And he said, what's the plan? I said, look, I've got enough EMR points to get us to, I think it was Melbourne. And then I said, we're going to drive to Adelaide and then we're going to drive across the desert to Darwin. And then we're going to convince the UN that we're journalists and they're going to fly us to the war zone. <laughs> that was the part of the plan where I thought things would fall down. I thought what it was going to be was a documentary about us driving across Australia. Oh, right. Uh, we nearly drowned. There was a cyclone and we had to drive all this flooding and it was just a shambles uh, and so we'd made this doco about trying to get to the war and then literally after a kind of a few days in darwin we'd run out of money and then the u.n said yeah there's a plane for you you know on the tarmac and we got onto this fucking um like a, like mil- a, a military plane or something like yeah like yeah. a hercules with all these like soldiers and and, and <laughs> aid workers and and we were just dudes and jeans and a t-shirt with a couple of hi eight cameras going oh and we literally had no money going what on earth and we're flying this was probably when the, the conflict started kind of september i think this was maybe january january february so you know stuff was still going on right and we flew from australia because i could never understand how something like that could be happening in timor which was so close to australia how was this for all of those years all of that those the massacres and the injustice and yeah you know how could that be happening and then suddenly we're on this plane leaving Darwin, a relatively civilised kind of environment, <laughs> landing in Dili and just going, what? We don't we don't even know anybody. And did you think for a second, oh shit, this is getting real? Like I didn't expect, yeah, didn't expect super, to actually get on the plane and su- here we are. Super, super real. Yeah. Super, super real. Like we had <laughs> kind of reached out to the New Zealand Army and then we hadn't really heard anything back. We right. said, oh look, we're thinking you're coming over. And they went, oh yeah, you come over. you know. And so we, we arrived and I just thought we'd arrive and we'd just find the New Zealand Army, but nobody knew where they were. They don't think... <laughs> They weren't in. They weren't in Delhi, and so there was, there was all of these, you know, the roofs were burned off places. But I just remember we'd we'd just be, we'd got. I'm a huge believer in serendipity right. and just and gateway people. Whether that's in your career and being open to opportunities and seizing upon them. But I, but I just you know I always believe that there's these gateway people. If you meet the right person at the right time, they will be the person who is the conduit to everything that you want. Yeah. And in this particular event, it was a guy that we happened to sit next to on the plane who'd been through various conflict zones around the world. And he was just, he, was, he wasn't a mercenary, but he was someone who turned up in places looking to make money. And so he had container loads of washing machines, yogurt makers, fans, extension cords, wow. um, 
and he was going to be setting up a laundromat and then selling all of the stuff that he knew the UN didn't probably have. Oh. He was an outfitter, an outfitter of, of in conflict and disaster zones. And and so he said, oh, look, you know, we didn't have anywhere to stay. He said, come with me. I've got a room booked at this place. It turned out the room had been given away. Um, and within about three hours of there, we were having a beer with him and smoking cones. And we just <laughs> we got quite drunk and very high. And then the next morning I woke up at, at if we didn't have anywhere to stay and he said just we'll go and sleep on this floor and we'd snuck into this room and, and we were sleeping on this floor and I remember there were all these you know those little pod tents tiny pod yeah, tents yeah. they were all in this kind of large room and I remember waking up and Aaron was there and we kind of had the camera beside us and then out of these little pod tents all these kind of burly dudes started getting out and then putting on Australian police uniforms <laughs> and we'd inadvertently and like we're just going what the f- what is going on <laughs> How is this a thing? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's those moments in your career where, you know, things happen and you just go with them. And, and yeah, after a couple of days, we, we managed to blag a couple of UN press passes and we could fly over to Suai. We met the troops. And we, we actually filmed the second part of the documentary. It was sort of, once we'd found them, was was all about just kind of the boring old day-to-day life of what it's like to be a soldier. Right. The guy doing the laundry, the cooks, all of those people that... That that make an outfit kind of function, so mm. that's what we kind of focused on. Um, but did you did you one. did you find yourself starting to sort of adapt to the the way of life of of you know the the danger just sort of became a background thing, or were you in were you, did you were you fearful quite often? We were we were never really in any kind of mortal danger. I don't think Dilly. It was there were still riots and there were things happening. Yeah, we went to Israel a couple of years later. By the time Aaron, I convinced him to make another film, the premise of which we were going to go because we couldn't find the war in Timor. Right. I couldn't, you know, so we were going to go to Israel and try to find the war there. And on Christmas Day, we were going to go to Bethlehem and eat a chicken. How, that was the entire plan. How anyway, hard is it? Seems... How hard is it to find a war? By the way, I mean they're quite loud. Aren't oh they? yeah, really hard, really really hard. <laughs> That's why I was a terrible war correspondent. And, and I'd actually, but but the, the other side of that was uh, you know. And I say I, I wanted to be New Zealand's first comedy war correspondent, <laughs> right. by which I wanted to use the medium of comedy to to get really serious subjects across. Yeah. And I, I've said it a lot of times that people may have heard. You know, I said there's only so much John Pilger you can watch before you want to slam your manhood in a car <laughs> door for half an hour. That's right. You know, you you want com- comedy w- was always a the the way to draw people into something that they didn't think they wanted to see. So yeah. if you have a look through like Off the Radar and all of those programs, they never set out to be intentionally funny. We weren't making a comedy, but inadvertently I was a bit crap at all of the things I was supposed to do. And so the comedy came from that. And I had assumed prior to this that the same would be, you know, how often does a war correspondent go to the war? The comedy was going to come entirely from my ineptitude as a correspondent. Right. Like literally the entire plan for, for Timor, I thought was going to stop. But once we, you know, once they gave us a press pass and put us on a Hercules and flew us into Dilly, comedy has to ensue because this <laughs> is not, I didn't, I didn't want this. And, and yeah. likewise, you know, um, and there, you know, there, there were days there where we, didn't know what was going to happen. We couldn't find the war, you know. And I remember the first day, so, you know, Tel Aviv is relatively kind of civilised, and then you head up to Jerusalem, and then the first day we said, look, we've got to go and try to, you know, we're going to go into Ramallah, uh, you know, and you've seen it on all the news, and we're just two dudes in jeans and a leather jacket and borrowed home video cameras again, and we got on a shuttle, and we tried to figure out how to get there. Aaron was actually working as a tour guide for Kontiki, I think, by the stage, and he was great at getting logistics, right. getting in and out of things, and, 
you know, um, and so we, we find out, walked around. We actually walked, the first day we went to Ramallah, we just walked around asking if anyone knew where Yasser Arafat's house was. Because um, <laughs> he was under house arrest and we were pretty sure he was going to be home. And I was just going to turn up and, and we literally turned up and knocked on the, the gate post with a soldier outside and said, can we speak to Yasser Arafat? No shit. So someone actually told you where he lived? Yeah, yeah, everyone knew where he You're lived. Like, oh, he's he was down there, in a big compound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, because he was, you know, he couldn't go anywhere. Right. He was, you know, under house arrest. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but they didn't they didn't let us in to interview him. And I thought, oh, God, well, you know, <laughs> hilarious part of the docker. But again, gateway people. I met a woman, uh, I think in a bar or somewhere like that. She was a gateway person. She knew everybody. Um, and she introduced us to this guy, Muhammad, who was American. That He'd brought over an interfaith delegation to have a look at the situation over there. They were having quite a tough time of it. They were Americans. Yeah. You know, they, they this was a very traumatic and complicated thing for them to understand and these two New Zealanders kept popping up and we were kind of entertaining and funny we were telling them about this film that we were making and and then eventually you know Muhammad said hey look we've got a meeting tonight do you want to come to this meeting I said oh you know I didn't really have anything else to do I can't find the war he said, you know who's who's the meeting with he says oh look I'm I'm I'm, I'm taking the group we're going to go and meet Yasser Arafat and I went yeah yeah we're not doing anything else tonight we got on the little bus and it took us to the compound and sat in a little room a small boardroom and there was Yasser Arafat and we asked him a question and shook his hand very soft um you know and, and, uh, and what did you what did, what did you ask him oh this is I asked him the most probably the most New Zealand question of all. We really only got a chance to ask like one quick question. It was like, right. um, do you have a message for the people of New Zealand? Right. You know, and yeah. said, oh, and look, did he say, where's New Zealand? No, he said, oh, look, you know, very appreciative for the support of the people of New Zealand. They've been very vocal in sort of the, you know, the Palestinian cause, blah, blah, blah. But, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't really, it wasn't really a great question or, or anything. I, I have since claimed to be the last New Zealand journalist to interview Yes, <laughs> before he died because I, I mean, I did, I was a journalist and I asked him a question. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and again, that's that sense of grandioseness when you celebrate your own career. When you're writing your own bios for people to read out at events, you can write anything you want. But um, yeah, eventually we, we tried to get in, into Gazari and couldn't and, and made this kind of documentary and, and came back again. And, and again, you know, the nature, I stripped a lot of the audio out, turned it into what essentially would have nowadays be called a podcast, I suppose. But yeah. it was a radio documentary for, for RNZ. And again, finding different ways to use that material in, in a number of different sort of what formats right um well before when you're talking about uh comedians having a different approach to that kind of thing i I agree with that and i think there's something great about a kind of cross wire or a contradiction i I, i've always used the example of george martin producing the beatles where he wasn't a rock producer his his background mm, was mm. in classical and jazz and things and that gave them a different sensibility and a different sort of musical sophistication that they wouldn't have got potentially with a rock producer and mm. um, a, a lot of comedians, of course, have done travel shows and political things and so on. And I think that's really nice because it, it gives a, a different perspective uh, and a different angle on these subjects that are in, in some ways more relatable because we're not necessarily watching these shows from a position of being qualified in politics or qualified in war. We're just normal people wondering what the fuck's going on. Yeah. And, yeah. and you and you'll note, you know. So if you look at the two major seven o'clock shows here, um, mm. much to the horror of many people, you know, fronted by comics, so right? With, uh, with Jesse and Jeremy, and then uh, Jeremy Wells over on one, uh, you know, there's that kind of satirical news or the ability to say, look, here are the news, but here's a kind of a, again a more entertaining angle because what is, you know, news was always just a ratings thing. How do you make it right? You make it entertaining, I suppose. Um, right. Has it led to a, a dearth of quality journalism? No, yes, no, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, journalism is going to be journalism and you've got to just find, you've got to find a way to 
to, to put that into those programs, yeah. you know. Actually, you know, the, the classic thing, comedians are some of the most serious people you'll, you'll ever meet. Generally, always have an opinion about right. something. Yeah, and often you very know, intelligent um, too. Yeah, well, often. Yeah, also, often. <laughs> having said that, a lot of imbeciles and morons, um, <laughs> as there is in, in everything, and, and, and often intelligent and oddly imbecilic at the same time. So, but in you know, regards, it's, it's been, in, in yeah. regards to politics, I, I don't have the head, uh, the head space or the mind to follow politics. I kind of follow it from a distance because I, I see it more as a soap opera. I see it more as a, it's just a, yeah. a people throwing shit at each other a lot. And uh, but I know that you've you've been well immersed in that world and documented it a lot. How do you keep up with it? And do you have to be slightly mad to keep up with it? Oh, look, it, it is. I I'm probably not as immersed in it now as I as I used to be because I just kind of got sick of all of that kind of thing. But yeah. I do have a lot to do with politicians, um, prime ministers, and governors. I'm all you know, particularly through corporate stuff. You're always introducing them onto stage. You're always hanging around, having mm. a chat. So you're always seeing kind of ministers and and in a way, it's sort of demythologizes the nature of the kinds of people who have these roles right um and actually there was a really interesting comment the other day because i think new zealand is very different from from other countries and we're we're a small country everybody knows each other to a certain extent if you say did you know bob from ikatahuna oh no but it's his sister sarah because i think my (laughs) assistant no so but i was doing a, a a big tech awards uh reseller awards um you know run by an australian outfit and, and they made the comment afterwards like you know i like awards are really celebratory i love to have fun and celebrate and and you know that the speeches from a lot of the big execs were very funny mm. um and, and kind of off the calf and uh, laid back is not quite the right word but not formal right you know yeah. and the australian outfit said this this, this would never happen in australia mm. you would never have someone the, the host or, or the people having that kind of relationship with the minister uh, and you wouldn't have the the bosses coming on stage and and kind of mocking each other and, and making jokes so i think there's all humor is there's there's always been a lot of humor underlying the the, the nature of the kinds of people we are and actually the uh, the comedy documentary series uh, that got made was it last year or the year before i haven't seen the series but i read the book the book is amazing right you know? yeah and again, you know, uh, that so many people, music in particular, slightly less so than, than comedy maybe, we forget the past. We forget all those crazy and clever ideas that we think we're having. Somebody's generally already done it. That's right. You know, you forget that kind of lineage. You see some old guy with a guitar, you know, singing somewhere, and you think, yeah, and who's that guy? Well, chances are he was like the greatest act that you never saw because you were too young. That's you know, right, yeah. Likewise in comedy. So in terms of that politics thing, yeah, you kind of, I think you have to be a bit crazy to be a politician. You certainly, you know, the world of it is is, is absolutely nuts. Mm. um, You know, it's never been, uh, I was going to say, it's never been more satirical. I think about three years ago, I started saying we'd seen the, the, the death of, of comedy and that we were we had been transcended by the people that we were satirizing and they were satirizing themselves right. in a way we were we were in a post comedy world because if we made this stuff up if we made up a boris johnson if we made up a trump yeah um even to an extent you know here with a, a tamaki or a david seymour or something like people would get and you put that in a script for a sitcom or something people would go that's too far that's you, right that'll never happen yeah. you can't have that it's not believable so we'd, we'd no, it's not believable. Yeah. We'd reached a, a, a post-comedy world of non-believable truth. Right. And what does that do to the comedy world? Does that mean that you, you have to reach even further? You have to go even more extreme in your comedy? 
I suppose it depends on the nature of what kind of comedy you're doing. Maybe you actually go gentler. People really love gentle comedy now. You right. know, some of my favourite crowing is a gentle comedies. Yeah. I just finished watching The Detectorists and it started Brooklyn uh, nine, nine, 9 or whatever. It's, you know, I, I kind of like so that good. gentle stuff. Yeah. But then at the same time, you know, there's a real anger. Good comedy also relies upon a degree of anger. And you have right. a look at the likes of... I think John Oliver is incredible. Um, and even just to watch... Um, uh, from the Late Show, um, the Late Show, American Stephen glasses. Stephen Colbert, Stephen Colbert. Yeah. To watch Stephen Colbert and the rage that he has had over the last kind of, particularly three years, mm. four years in particular, you know, and, and that the sense of injustice that they are bringing and saying, "Look, this is wrong on so many levels," and, and I think in many ways there's never been a better time for for serious comedy that cuts through and, right. and, and satirizes and, and undermines these pretentious and pompous authoritarian zealots yeah. that exist in all, in, in all levels of society. Um, and it's interesting know, from Stephen Colbert because he's he was quite a quiet and, and sort of polite and kind yeah. when he is. I mean, he seems to be a very kind yeah. person, but he's not. He, his, his whole thing wasn't based on being an angry comic. You know his no. his anger is is a very organic response to what's going on, and some of the the, the some of the the angriest and most direct comedy I've seen on what is ostensibly an incredibly mainstream program, right? On the Late Show, exactly. you know, it's, yeah. it's phenomenal. He's not on some cable channel, but that's the question: so, yeah, is, I, is comedy uh, something about you know? Is comedy about pushing out the the extremes and and offending and shocking people, or is comedy more a voice of the people? I think it's a voice of the people. It's always been there as a voice of the people. You know, yeah. the jester through, you know, the, the courtiers of kings, the jester is there to be the person who who, who punctures the kinds of, the pomposity of people. Right. Um, who is there to remind people or who who can articulate a logical fallacy of some kind. Right. You know, and, and it's better to do that with a laugh and, and it probably has more effect than to simply point it out in a way. That's right. Um, you know, there are, people who are relatively humorless and I would say a lot of that kind of American right-wing evangelicals is don't not a lot of real humor in their things so right. to, to puncture their kind of bubbles and to say what you're doing is 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 inhuman and absurd it, it washes off them yeah a, and you you'll probably never change the people that you're satirizing but maybe the people who think you know might just watch and go you know what actually that does that is stupid mm. that does seem wrong or or unfair or unjust or 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 just well, it's kind of a balancing, yeah. isn't it? That's what I think. That's what comedy offers. It's it's a it's a balance to what's going on. So if yeah. society is being controlled in a very conservative and narrow minded way, then comedy is fantastic at blowing the the walls out and and yeah. and challenging that. And what's happening now is the other way around. We've got this absurd, um, basically comedy show happening at the White House, at the White House level. Yeah. And now comedians are responding the other way, going, for fuck's sake, let's get sensible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are. We're the ones going, hey, we should be more sensible. Yeah. But, the, you know, and, and you look at that, and, and again, I sort of had stopped looking at stuff like that for a while because I just found it depressing. It was like climate change. You know? yeah, I, I yeah. went through a period last year, I think, where I just couldn't... I've been doing a lot of work in the rural. I do a lot of rural. I'm very rural. Right. Most of my work is rural, mm. agribusiness. I'm an agribusiness guy. <laughs> I had a farming background and I came into docos. My whole career was meant to get away from farming. Yeah. And I've never done more farming business work. Um, and again, I, I did uh, a couple of things with um, big agronutrients companies. There's two of them in the country, uh, Duopoly. Uh, and I did some stuff for them, uh, hosting forums and things people said how can you work for those people and i said well it's, it's really interesting. you can you can work 
against them, or you could be on the inside and, and and try to understand what's going on and just be a little thorn. So I was hosting for one of them this big series of, of, of discussions around the country around the future of farming. Right. And so I got to be there, and they would have all of the, a lot of their clients, their main clients, and their suppliers, and various other people. And I got to to ask some really deliciously challenging questions that put people on the spot. Yeah. If I wasn't there, if they just had someone who was a, I guess a sort of a, you know, someone from from within, maybe those questions wouldn't have been asked, and, and I would hope that people went away from that going, oh, actually, maybe that is a good point, or you know, exactly. You, you, if you, you you can't always change things from the outside, and also at the same time, you then got to say, well, actually, here's, you know, when when people are arguing against us, but here's here's some other stuff that they are doing that I think is pretty cool, mm. you know, that is going to change the nature of what their business is because they know, they know they can't keep being a company reliant upon minerals from the Sahara and pouring them all over our country. Right, yeah. I mean, there is a reason that we have to put fertilizer on land because we have very poor soils and various other things. But that, you know, where are these countries, you know, and they've been around for a long time, this huge amount of investment. They're not going to go away. Yeah. So how do you how do you get inside to try to understand what they're thinking and, and, and then to provoke change and to cause them to think in some other way so i think comedy is great for that sort of thing as well you can be a provocateur and a thorn in the side and and you have the ability to ask a question if it's done with good humor right that you might not be able to ask you couldn't get away if with you were just so, yeah, yeah that's right you know you can get away with an awful lot with a smile and a and a laugh but still people put put people on the spot well i love and have them answer. exactly and i love comedy for for lots of reasons i love um the the way that it breaks the ice i personally think that the loss that we endured as a country when we lost Billy T. James was far greater than we probably realised because he was so good at yeah. making us laugh at ourselves and and yeah. getting these really hot topics and and sort of making us all re- not relax o- over them but just sort of come together as an audience and and laugh at some of these ridiculous absurdities in our culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. the living loss of John Clark, who 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 had to go to Australia and had a huge career in Australia, would never come back to New Zealand and and what he did over there. I, I you know, I it was sort of a Billy T. fan, but much more of a John Clark. I was right. much more of a John Clark kind of guy. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just thought what he did was phenomenal. Yeah, and it just went on and on and on. You know, right up until you know, it was two or three years ago when he when he finally kind of died. And you know, but we we do have these great comedies and and again that sense of you know. Now is also a good time, I think, for people to reflect a little bit on their careers. I always think it's really helpful when you're kind of thinking, oh, my God, I haven't I done. Sit down and actually just write a list of all the things you've done in the last year or the last five years or the teaching and really dig deep into it. And yeah. to remind yourself that if you are a creative, you probably have done a bit more than you think. That's right. And, and likewise, that you know, I, I thought one of the best things in the last couple of years for New Zealand Comedy was, that, was the production of that book that went along with um, – uh, funny as the documentary series because mm-hmm. it reminded I always said you know there was something the other day there was someone wrote on the pantograph punch or somewhere oh you know comics are comics are coming from theatre and using theatre for the first time in stand up no no they're not <laughs> this happened in multiple iterations over the many years I mean we in my generation came, a lot of us came from a theatre background into stand up the generation before the same thing happened and, yeah. then, and to remind people that you know as I said before these intergenerational things that people forget you know it turned out one of the, the biggest selling New Zealand acts in the history of the country was a, a sort of a group that came out of the second world war and then performed something like 5,000 times over the next 10 like they what? sold hundreds of thousands of tickets in New Zealand and Australia they were massive and what, absolutely what, what, what were they like a theatre group or something yeah well, like a comedy troupe right 
Yeah, they had like residencies, residencies in Auckland, massive residencies in in Melbourne and Sydney and things, and and literally anyone in comedy probably couldn't name who they were. I'm right. thinking, I'm trying, I don't even, I can't even remember the name off the top of here, but but it's always this good reminder to go back and 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 to think, oh, I'm doing really well now, you know. Yeah. Well, actually, there's been a whole lot of people who have done well. What you think are new is innovative, probably done, but also to look at it and go, well, well, that's a well, that's a good idea. I like what they're doing there, because. You know, and particularly now when we look at the changing nature of what does it mean to be entertained? Mm, yeah. How do I how do I how do I how do I pay for that? How do I pay for the lifestyle that I want to pursue my particular art form? You know, it's always good to look at the past. People will always we are an as I said, an inherently social creature. We love we love to be with other people. We love stories and we love music. It's right. a part of the DNA of what it means to be human. Exactly. And we will always want that. In what form for the next couple of years? You know, who knows? I think you know, particularly a, a younger generation will be very, very happy to engage. You know, in a, in a Zoom thing with a, you know, yeah. with fifty people on Zoom watching someone perform um, from the comfort of their own lounge or bed or office or car or wherever it may be that they are doing that. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, who knows? Exactly. As I say, yeah. I, 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 as soon as we're finished talking, I'm totally going to log on to <laughs> Chatterbait and see if I can monetize book reading. It's a solid plan. Bugger podcasting. I'm just going to get, I'm just going to have tips from people who are just hanging out and just paying, shall I read another chapter? Zing, 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 zing. Here's some, here's some more money and here's some more tokens. Yeah. It's going to be awkward for people to go, you know, have to explain on their, like their visa statement. Uh, what, what's all this, all this money to this porn site oh no it was literature i was <laughs> it was a book it, it was a book reading <laughs> it's a solid plan well i'm not sure if this thing is gonna is this thing gonna turn itself off at two o'clock is that how it's gonna work because i said does the, it I, I don't know I, it asked me to set the time frame and then I put, i've never i've never yeah i don't know never, i've never reached the end of a time frame <laughs> i've been kicked out of many time frames <laughs> yeah 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 hey you know i it's a time of optimism and i think the big thing i've said this um kindness we've got to be kind to people That's you know right. yeah. um, creators and, and all of that and, and and particularly when we get out of this bubble we don't know what has happened to people that we see in the street doing something that we find to be annoying or obnoxious we don't know what has happened in their lives yeah. in the last kind of six to twelve weeks you know um be understanding um, but above all just you know you gotta as much as you can just do you absolutely pursue your art form in whatever way it may be and just be relentlessly you because the performers that I have loved over the years no one else is like them it's just them right you know yeah um, I think even you know I've got it somewhere I stole a poster the other day for war I went to a Chris Knox event at the Point Chev Library about uh, halfway through last year you know amazing Chris Knox being Chris Knox no one else can be Chris Knox <laughs> just do you absolutely and help and and then help other people to to do them to be themselves well thank you so much for for your time today and uh hey thanks daddy we're now down to two seconds Mm. and one let's find out if it stops is it going to stop oh no it didn't stop oh it didn't that was the sound of of anyone going what was that strange sound is it is it zoom winding down no that was my water bottle See, now I've got it. Now, here's the other thing, you know, right. in terms of creativity. I've got this water bottle. It's just a water bottle. Um, But a woman, uh, was she makes leather things, and she had these leather bespoke water bottle holders. And it didn't fit my water bottle, but she, oh, she for the same price, she went home that weekend and made me like a bespoke leather water bottle holder. Wow. That's an art form as well. I'm hoping that we see the rise of people who think, I can, how can I... How can I monetize ironmongery or my leatherwork or my tapestry or my quilting? Yeah. You know, all of these little crafts. I wonder if if all this this 
this distancing that we've had from being able to go to Kmart and buy stuff means that people will be more discerning about what they buy. They want to have a story and a tactile thing that mm. you can only get from authenticity. So I love that. I, yeah. And I think that's, it's so satisfying to, to make something. The, the time you spend on it, mm. the, the, that feeling you get at the end when you've made something, even if it's a bit shit, it's, it's the thing that, you, you know, it's, it's yours and you Brilliant. made it, you know. You just really neatly encapsulated my career. You just make it yourself and it's a bit shit, but it's yours. <laughs> it's yours. What greater, what greater summation can you have exactly. for 20 years in the entertainment industry? <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks so much. Hey, thank you, man. What a trip. What a journey. Thanks, Terrader, for being on the show. Thanks again to Jane at Johnson and Laird. Laird? Laird. Laird? Laird. Laird. It's got air in the middle. Air. Just say air and then start with an L and finish with a D. Laird. It's so hard to say. I'm going to have to ask Jane how to say it. Thank you so much for putting that interview together and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please spread the word. We're trying to grow the show. We're trying to grow the audience. Uh, our Facebook is something like facebook.com slash don't give up your day job. I think our Instagram is something like that as well. I know I should know these things, but I don't, so deal with it. Uh, my Facebook page is Danny McCrum Music, Facebook slash Danny McCrum Music or whatever. Man, I'm good at this, aren't I? I'm so good at this. I'm so good at social media because I love it so much. Fuck social media. But anyway, like me on social media. I'm getting confused and I'm getting lost and maybe this is cabin fever. I am feeling like my brain is starting to melt. So on that note, have a good week, take care of yourselves and we'll be back very soon. you find what we're doing useful and you like this podcast please do like share and subscribe and give us a review on itunes